Hi, I'm Wilson Gall. And I'm Ellie Roark. And you're listening to the Fledgling Theories podcast, where once a month we bring you a new piece of bird research and chat about it for a little bit. So this month we're talking about alien species richness is currently unbounded in all but the most urbanized bird communities by Toby P. Ensang, Ellie E. Dyer, and Timothy C. Bonebreak. So Wilson, what does this tell us about alien bird species richness in urban communities? Well, so I think we'll sort of mention the question they're studying, but then I think we need to do a little background about this topic in general. The main question they're looking at is uh, about the number of alien or non-native bird species in an area and whether that is somehow limited and they're using as a test case urban areas to, to see if um, the amount of urbanization limits the number of new introduced bird species that can be in an area. Right. So how many bird species can an urban, how many alien bird species can an urban area hold? Yeah. It's essentially the question they're asking. And the question is kind of if you keep having new introductions, you know, new species re- um, that re- are released or escaped from pet trade or something like this. You keep having new species introduced. Is there some point at which no, you won't any longer get those establishing sort of feral wild populations? Like would the, would the space for new species somehow fill up so that even if you released a new species, it would die out rather than establish or it would have to push another species out in order to establish? Right, exactly. Because all environmental spaces, all habitats have a kind of carrying capacity. There's the, a number of individuals that they can reliably support. And at some point you would reach that in terms of species filling up all the niches and, and using all the resources. Well, that's the question. I mean, I th- yes, definitely there's a carrying capacity for the number of individuals right. of some species. I think it's still not entirely clear whether there's a limit or a carrying capacity on the number of species that you can have. I think that's still an open research question in macroecology. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure that I had the impression that that was still an open question, but that's a good distinction to make. Well, I think that's the background that we have to talk about with this study is why would they be doing this study to begin with? On the one hand, there's a practical application of you might want to know if your area is at risk of having even more invasives move in or alien species. But to my mind, there's another reason to study this question in urban settings, and that is if you're interested in the fundamental question about whether any habitat can fill up or any area can sort of fill up with species, one good place to study that is habitats that are very limited in some case, where you expect that maximum number of species to be low. Exactly, like an urban community as opposed to, you know, perfect, pristine, rural habitat. Yeah, and the reason for that is that in an urban community, if it's all concrete and pavement and there's no plants, you might have, you know, a real limitation both on nesting areas and also on the food availability. Right. And so this, it might be similar to like studying a desert or any sort of severe, harsh environment where you expect whatever limits are there to be lower than a lot of other places. Yeah. It makes it an easier place to study because the system is a little bit simplified. Yep. Yeah. And we should make the distinction that um, really clearly this is focused on alien species specifically. So species that have been introduced from elsewhere um, that are not native to to the particular area, um, the particular community where they're found. So just like a 
to give you the very brief sort of 30 second overview of the history of this kind of study, um, one question that's been studied for a long time in ecology is the relationship between sort of a regional species pool and a local species pool. And by that we mean as the regional pool, take for instance, all of the birds in your country or your state. And your local pool is the birds in your back garden or at your bird feeder. The local pool, the birds at your bird feeder, are some subset of all of the birds in your country or state. You right. can't have birds at your feeder that aren't in your country, so every bird at your feeder came from this larger pool of birds in your country. And so to some extent, the number of birds and, the t and which birds are at your feeder is limited by what's available in your country. And that isn't necessarily sort of like every possible species that could possibly live there. Historical accidents can change what species are available. Hmm, sure. So if you have a, a lawn in North America, you might now have a European starling or a house sparrow on your lawn. 300 years ago, that wouldn't have been a possible species on your lawn because that's a European species. It was introduced to North America, but it's subsequently become part of the regional pool, and therefore it can become a part of that smaller set of birds that are in your local area. Right. And so this study is looking at the species pool, defining the species pool for alien species as all species that have been introduced to that region ever, basically. <laughs> yeah, and this to me is a different way. I've not seen species pool defined this way before. Usually a species pool is talking about all of the birds or all of the species sort of currently existing in a larger geographic area around you. Right, but it's time limited in some ways. You wouldn't talk about every species that has ever been there, but all the species that are currently there. Yeah, if we're talking about your bird feeder in North America, we wouldn't include the passenger pigeon in the species pool because even though it was there in the past, we're really only talking about the current birds. Yeah. This study uses a different definition of species pool. Their alien species pool is all of the birds that have ever been introduced into an area, whether or not they're still successfully established, whether or not they ever successfully established. Yeah. Which I think is a fine decision to have made if you're focusing on alien species. I mean, it's like a little bit of an awkward distinction from the normal definition of species pool, but how else can you think of a better way to kind of quantify the number of possible alien species in a, an area? No, I think this way of talking about the species pool makes makes sense for the question they're asking. Yeah, the question they're asking is, can you keep adding new species to, an, to a system, yeah. to an area? And so from that sense, it definitely makes sense to think about putting a species out there as part of the species pool. So you, you release a species or something, it's been added. If it fails to establish and disappears, that is relevant information. So I think for their study question, it does make sense to talk about species pool as a, a long period of time and all the species that have been introduced in that time. Yeah. One uh, just interesting aside here is that the article talked about how there was a big shift in the 19th century from um, most alien species introductions happening as like a deliberate effort of something that they called like, I, I forget the exact name of it in the article, but like it, it was like an a climatization effort where they were trying to move species around the globe and distribute them. And now species mostly get moved because of bird species mostly get moved because of like caged bird trade. Yeah, it's pet, very pet trade. And I think that's very dependent on the 
group of organisms. So with birds, yeah, it used to be that if you liked European starlings and you wanted a little bit of Europe in the new North <laughs> right. America, you yeah. would release starlings to sort of as a decorative thing, basically. Yeah. We no longer do that with birds. It's very bad, you know, or you're not supposed to release reptiles and snakes. But we do that with plants all the time. You, you might plant in your garden some species from Asia Sure. Or Europe or North America. Your local botanic garden is not full of native species, I promise. No, nor even your garden outside of your house. Yeah, of um, course. And that, I think, is just... <clears throat> it's not because there's any fundamental difference between birds and plants. It's just sort of social norms. And I think that will probably change, too. So there are already... There's already a growing awareness of the fact that non-native species in gardens escape into the wild. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so anyway, that yeah. might change with time with plants too, but so basically... It's easier to see the mechanism for birds escaping into the wild if you're just a person who's a... Well, I don't know. I think any gardener who has planted some plant that then takes over their garden easily understands That's the mechanism true. by which plants sort of get out of control. That's true. We're <clears throat> exposing the extent to which I'm not a gardener here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's kind of off topic. Um, the point here is that they want to know, can you keep adding alien bird species to a community forever. Like, can you, yep. is there a limit to how many species you can add? Or could you just keep adding as long as you keep bringing in new species, some proportion of those species will successfully establish. And so they study it in urban settings because they expect that the more urban an area is, the more limited it will be in how many species it can take for the reasons we talked about. There's not as much food or water or habitat. Or exactly. So what do they expect to find so they study this, this gradient of urban areas measured by impervious surface, or basically hard surfaces, so like pavement and concrete. How do they expect studying a, a gradient of urban areas to give them insight into this question? Well, they expected that um, the more urban an area was, the more you would see the species richness in an area, that is that very local species pool, kind of reach a stable level and hang out there. Yeah, richness is a bad word. But all <laughs> right. It's just a very fancy technical word for saying the number of species. The number of species, right. <laughs> yeah, sure. So. Right, so they expect that um, the more urban an area is, the more you see the number of species level off. Meaning that, that despite more introduction events happening, more escapes or more releases, you don't see more alien species surviving in the wild. Exactly. That that number of alien species becomes stable, and no matter how many more you add, it just stays at that same level. Okay. And in less urban areas, so with more vegetation and trees and grass, you know, parks and things like this, what would you expect to see? You would expect to see that stable level be at a much higher number of species, if you see the stable level at all. Yeah, or you might not see it level off. You might yep. just see if you keep releasing new species, you keep getting more and more non-natives that establish. Right. And in fact, that seems like roughly what they found. So in, in areas with the most extreme urban gradient, the highest percentage of impervious surfaces, they found that the number of species does level off at some point. But in almost all other urban gradients, um, the number of species barely leveled off or did not level off at all. And so the, those highly urbanized areas you can think of are like Paris or Miami. But in, in places that are less intensely urbanized than that, 
the number of species is seems to be currently unbounded. So this is interesting. So going right back to what you said at the beginning, your sort of intuition, Ellie, was that, oh yeah, every place fills up with species. There's a carrying capacity to species in the same way that there's a carrying capacity to individuals. Yeah, exactly. And that turn- seems like an intuitive thing. It seems intuitive, but in fact, in this study, you only see a carrying capacity limit in the most severe places, and everything else, you don't see the limit. It seems like it's just going up for everything that we can observe. Sure, for alien species, we should say that. So, Although, is that the case for native species too? Do you know? Well, I mean, I, I haven't done an exhaustive, like, or haven't even read an exhaustive review of the literature of studies, but I have seen multiple studies showing both patterns. I've seen studies that show areas and types of habitats where, where number of species seems to level off, and I have seen studies where there's no leveling off in species. It just seems to be kind of unbounded. Hmm. Now, that said, there are some limits of some sorts. So one of the questions is like, if there's a limit, what causes it? So in a local area, like your garden or a public park or an urban city, there's what's called habitat filtering, which means of all of the regional pool of species, all the birds in your country, you only get a subset in your park and that subset is limited to the birds that can live in that habitat. Right. So basically the habitat filters out a lot of birds. So at your bird feeder, the habitat is going to filter out common loons and um, yep. ducks and things like this. There's just, the habitat's just totally wrong and so it, it excludes those. And so the only things that get into your garden are things that pass that filter. Right, and then within that filter, there are habitat niches. So um, within every habitat, there are different little kind of pockets of habitat occupancy that are taken by different kinds of species. So some species eat nuts and some species eat fruit and some species like to perch high in trees and some species like to perch low in bushes, etc. Okay, so these are two totally fundamentally different mechanisms that we've mentioned here. So it's important to draw the distinction. The first one, the habitat filter, is the sort of the environment limiting what species can be there. That's the one I described. The thing Ellie just described is an interaction between bird species. It's saying if there's two seed eaters already there, those birds will prevent a third seed eater from coming in. That's that's basically the so-called niche partitioning. It basically just says if the birds are too similar in where they like to stand and what they like to eat, they will exclude each other through competition. So two very different mechanisms. One's about the environment. One is about the other bird species already there. Right, and both are factors in determining how many species are going to occupy a a spot. Maybe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm convinced about habitat filtering. There's no doubt that a common loon can't be at your feeder. But you're not convinced about habitat niche? No. Interesting, okay. Let me tell you two reasons why. This is, I just want to defend this as like a very popular and established theory. This is not like some fringe thing I'm making up. (laughs) It's popular and established, but it's also still being studied a lot. And usually if something's still being studied a lot, that's because there's not a real definitive answer yet. Yeah, You can still, you know, there's a rule, but there's too many exceptions to the rule. And when when you start getting a lot of exceptions to the rule, you go, "Mm -hmm, I don't know. So first of all, here's this study. This has some exceptions, but but we'll sort of set that aside. 
oh, man, we're really going back into my memory of like classics that I've read here. So if I get this wrong, it's because I haven't read this in years. But I think some of the real classic studies about this were in uh, rodent communities in the desert. I think I have this right. Maybe by Brown. Okay. Okay. But anyway, but I think it was like, again, a very severe environment or fairly severe environment. And these rodents were eating seeds and stuff in the desert or something like this. And they sort of found that um, if you had a new rodent species come in, it would sort of either not make it or it would kick out another rodent of the same size, basically. Hmm. But it was small communities of species, like five or tens of species, maybe. Not huge communities, a really severely limited community, probably by a harsh environmental filter in the first place that really lowered that limit. Let me just mention, so think about this in terms of a geological time scale. After a mass extinction, you have very few species left. Right. And what happens? Over thousands and millions of years... Those species reproduce and speciate eventually. Yeah, they speciate. You get more and more species. Right. Okay. So, I haven't ever seen a study, but I think it'd be super interesting to see, does the rate of speciation ever come to a limit? We've had multiple mass extinctions in the history of our planet. Have we ever gotten to a place where we are no longer increasing the number of species? I don't know. And are we there now? Like, even if you say, well, yeah, we could get there. Are we there now? Has the world filled up with the highest number of species we can have? There's no room for new species? I don't think so. Yeah, probably not. I think you could take some of those species that are kind of generalist and, and... over time, you could get multiple species, each with a narrower niche. But then does that species become more and more vulnerable? Like Yes, probably. Right, I and mean, so then in some way, I guess I just don't know, like there is no stable time at which we can measure like, ah, yes, this is the definitive number of species that can be contained in this environment because the environment is always changing. The number of species is always changing. The rate of speciation maybe is the same, but um, who knows? Yeah, I don't know if the rate of speciation is the same. All I'm saying is that I think there's good evidence for habitat filters. I'm not convinced that there's good evidence for biotic filters, or at least not very commonly. If it's, I mean, if it's there and it might be, I don't know the literature very well. My guess is that there are many, many cases where you are not limited in the number of species by the other species that are already there. Yeah. Well, that's some good food for thought. So, one thing that I have a question about with this article is that this was really just studying alien species richness. It's asking, if I keep adding new introduced species, how many alien species will end up living in this area? Right. What it's not looking at is whether those aliens are coexisting with the native species that were already there or whether they're kicking out native species. Totally. And this would address that exact question of whether there's a niche, compo- a niche right. component. Right. I felt like that was the biggest thing. I mean, that just was outside the scope of this study, and the study is interesting on its own merits, but the interaction between native and alien species is a, definitely of interest and not addressed here at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. It's outside the scope of the study. On the other hand, it's almost like a borderline fatal weakness in the study because one of the patterns they saw was that 
you can keep introducing new species and you keep getting an increase in the number of alien species that live there. And they say, oh, look, alien species richness is unbounded. It can just keep going up. Yeah. But if what's happening is the total number of species is staying the same, in fact, it, it, if it is strongly bounded, if your number of species is strongly bounded, you could still see this pattern if what's happening is the alien species are arriving and kicking out a species that was already there. Right. Then you're kind of artificially eliminating a good chunk of what's happening in the population, seeing an unbounded relationship where there might be a very strongly bounded relationship. Yeah, it's yeah. possible. So I just think that limiting it, I don't know, anytime, I'm just so against this limiting studies to native or non-native species, <laughs> because anytime you're refusing to look at all the other species in the community, you're no longer studying a community. Right. You're studying an arbitrary human definition of a subset of the community, and, and that could very much change the patterns that you see. Yeah, totally. And it is a little funny to, like, yeah, whatever. I mean, everyone loves to make distinctions between native and invasive species. It's a little funny to think about something like the rock pigeon, you know, which is, like, so dominant in almost every urban landscape all over the world. <laughs> and... Uh, it's funny to think about that as an invasive species in all those places. Yeah, in my mind, it's a global species. Right. Um, At this point, it basically is. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the reason that I think it's problematic in this case to only study the non-natives is that this question of whether the number of species is limited in some way is really a question about the fundamental nature of communities of organisms. And so if you're not studying a community, in my mind, you're not actually getting at that question very well. Right. Um, you know, this is no longer a macroecological study about communities in my mind. It's a sort of very narrow biological study about the history of where things used to live and where they live now. It, mm. But you're no longer studying a fundamental property of communities because there's a huge chunk of the community that you're missing that absolutely would if you're, you know, if the idea of interactions between species is correct and real, the native birds are participating in those interactions just as much as the aliens are. Sure. I mean, I think this study and the motivation behind this study might make sense if you are a kind of wildlife manager who's strongly invested in preservation of native species because of mandates set out by a number of <laughs> laws. Um, and so you know, what you care about is evaluating what is happening with native and alien species and subsetting the community in those ways because you're essentially required to. It's, yes, that, that's true. There's a very practical aspect of are you at risk for new invasions that right. this answers. Yeah. I should say this, this study didn't entirely ignore the possibility of kicking out native species. They did use as a predictor variable in their models the number of native species there. Okay. And the reason they did this is one idea is that if there's a strong habitat filter, because it's a, a desert or an urban wasteland, then you'd expect to find few native species there also, because the, the environment is just excluding most species. And so they did look at the number of native species there because they thought that might indicate how good the environment is. Mm. And what they found was that the number of native species is correlated with the number of invasive species and how limited it is. So basically in these unlimited systems where you can keep adding 
lots and lots of new invasives and there doesn't or new aliens and there doesn't seem to be a limit those same communities have very high numbers of native species which suggests that there's not some kind of eco or habitat niche trade-off happening yeah you're not kicking out natives necessarily you know on average when you add new ones now that's this is definitely not investigating any single interaction where you know it's possible that you can have an alien that comes out and carries a disease that sort of wipes out a single native species. Those sorts of one-to-one things are still possible where one species kicks out another. Yeah. But on average, this suggests that those communities are not limited. You can have large numbers of natives, and those communities where there are large numbers of species already are the exact communities into which you can add the most new species. That's interesting because there is something, like, obviously there is something, well, yeah, I don't know. It's it's sometimes hard for me not to conflate um, limiting factors of number of species with limiting factors of number of individuals because they, though it does seem like those things would be correlated. You know, predators would limit the number of individuals that are able to be in a, a given community, and it seems like predators might therefore also limit the number of species. Well, you're absolutely correct that the number of species, a limit to the number of species and a limit to the number of individuals are related. And, and, but again, it's easiest to see in the most extreme case. This is why people study these harsh environments. Yeah. So for one thing, we know it's very well established that the risk of a species going extinct is very much related to its population size. Yeah. This is for all sorts of things. Random events, if there's only 10 of some species and there's a big windstorm and a tree falls down and squishes all 10, it's extinct. Too bad. Boom, yeah, <laughs> right. But also there's genetic issues. There's inbreeding depression and things. If yeah. you don't have good genetic diversity because you've gone through one of these population bottlenecks, this population is very small, it's at risk of going extinct. Yeah. So if you have a very harsh environment, like an urban area or desert, where you can't have a high number of individuals of anything, that will kind of limit the number of species because you will just, whatever species are there are going to be at high risk of going extinct because they're going to have small population sizes. I guess my question is, I, we know that the number of individual birds is declining in many regions in the world, including you know North America, where many of the study sites were for this paper. Yeah, this study is pretty global, but yeah, many of the sites were in North America. Yeah, so I'm I'm just wondering, like, what, why are we seeing this disparate relationship between number of individuals decreasing notably and number of species maybe, as this study suggests, unboundedly increasing? Well, I think, I mean, the, the number, the birds decreasing is a whole separate topic sure. that we'd have to right, get right, into. Right. It's a real pattern, I'm convinced, but there could be some some reasons that it doesn't necessarily directly apply to this question. But I think the bigger, the, the, the point is, okay, what what's your point? <laughs> My question is, how can we be seeing increasing unbounded numbers of native and alien species and decreasing number of individuals? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm totally speculating here, but given that there's a a limit in severe environments where either by habitat or by limiting the number of individuals, there's a limit on the number of species that can be there in extreme urban areas, as this study found, maybe in deserts, things like this. Okay. Maybe 
as the conditions get better and you can get more individuals, that limit on the number of species goes up, but it goes up really quickly. Okay, so if the mm. environment gets a little better, the limit on the number of species goes up by a lot. Sure. We could have a situation where the number of species that are there is no longer limited by the environment or by the biotic interactions, the interactions between species, but is basically limited by historical accident. You just haven't had enough species arrive on your island yet. Or since the last mass extinction, there haven't been enough species to arise to sort of fill up the, the potential species space that the environment and the other species would allow. Huh. In that situation, you would see this unbounded pattern. So I think it's really about, like we know that that upper limit on number of species is there, at least in the most severe situations. The question is, in most environments, is that upper limit on the number of species higher than the number of species that are already available to colonize that area? Right, of course. I think what I'm interested in and curious about is why we have clearly seen, we, we are imposing limits on the number of individuals. Yeah. And, and yet we don't seem to be imposing those same limits on the number of species. Yeah. And I, I just think that's interesting, and I wonder uh, why that is. So we should mention in passing, I think some of the most interesting studies that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years are some large meta-analyses. I think Maria Dornelis and uh, Brian McGill and some others are involved in these studies, and they basically look at tens and hundreds of individual studies and try to summarize the patterns. Okay. One of the things they did is they looked at... Um, number of species in communities, species richness. Because there was a, a belief, I think, when they started this study that in general, in the world, the number of species is decreasing because of all these human-caused problems and yeah. invasive species and everything. What they found is that the individual studies that have done, been done, on average, show basically pretty much no change in the number of species. What's happening... Is this, for, this is for all species, not bird species. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was a bunch of different taxonomic groups. What's happening is that species are changing. They're being replaced. You get a, a house sparrow coming in and a passenger pigeon dying off yeah. or something. But the total number is actually very constant. So this is interesting. It's not really going down or going up. It actually seems to be quite almost like tightly regulated in some way. Like the total number of species in most areas is kind of... Well, no, it's not in most areas. Most areas did have a trend one way or the other. It was averaged across areas. Oh, I mean, I'd have to go back and read the studies again, but like a lot of extinctions happen in on islands or in, you know, rainforest and, and places like this that are highly biodiverse. Hmm. But most of North America is neither an island nor a rainforest. It's kind of temperate areas and extinctions just aren't happening super quickly there. Yeah. Uh, and so there are, there are pockets of the world where there are extinctions happening very fast. Right, and but it's even difficult to estimate the rate of those extinctions because we don't even know how many species there are in those areas. <laughs> yes, but in there are also large pockets of the world where we're not losing the number of species. It doesn't mean that we're not losing species because you could right. have something where there are five different native species in five different countries. The house sparrow comes in and establishes in all those five countries, and so you lose those five native species and you gain a house sparrow. Whatever. Yeah. This is not the the study we're talking about, but no. I'm just saying there. <laughs> it is the case that there are suggestions that species richness might be strongly 
bounded or regulated in some way. Okay. But the individual studies that try to look at that in individual communities, from what I've seen, show a whole mix of different patterns, including a lot of things like this that show no bounding in a lot of systems. Yeah, so maybe we have an increase in bird speciation and colonization to look forward to the world over. Yeah, maybe maybe in 30 years you're going to be able to walk out your door and see more birds in your city. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what this would suggest. that More bird species, not necessarily more bird individuals. Yeah, that's correct. More species. So um, it seems like you could keep getting new invasive species as long as they keep being released or, or escaping or whatever. Hmm. Anyway, very cool study. Food for thought. Uh, confusing patterns, hard patterns to untangle because yep. they're talking about big community patterns over big scales, but um, good fun to speculate about, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So once again, this study is called Alien Species Richness is Currently Unbounded in All but the Most Urbanized Bird Communities, and it was published in Ecography in 2019. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.